0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Aside from, I don't know, maybe Dolly Parton... Is there any American musician more beloved than Weird Al Yankovic? 40 years of recording, millions of records sold. He's got an iconic voice, the chops for pop, and a sense of humor that's both distinct and approachable. And now, after all this time, Weird Al is finally getting the biopic treatment. Weird, the Al Yankovic story, was co-written by Al himself. It debuts on the Roku channel this week. True to the biopic genre, Weird chronicles Al's life from childhood to present day. But unlike most biopics, it is not probing, emotional, and dark, nor is it grounded or realistic. There are no facades here to be lifted. If you're looking for that kind of thing, go watch I Don't Know, I'm Not There or something. What Weird Al does to popular music, he does here to biopics. It's a very funny, joke-a-minute parody. The film stars Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al and Evan Rachel Wood as Madonna, Al's main love interest. As I said, not necessarily entirely bound by fact or or grounding. Before we get into my interview with Al, let's hear a clip from Weird. This comes from early on in the movie. Al's father has just learned that his son has been secretly playing the accordion, which is in the Yankovic household, a forbidden instrument. His dad smashes it to pieces, a wounded, Enraged Al replies.
0: You, you think you're going to stop me from playing? You'll see. One day I'm going to be the best, perhaps not technically the best, but arguably the most famous accordion player in an extremely specific genre of music. I'll show you. I'll show everybody. Get out. Good
1: Beardal Yankovic, welcome uh, back to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you again. You too, Jesse. What was your actual real life relationship like with your dad?
0: <laughs> much different than that uh yeah we we uh we treat reality just a little bit there yeah my, my parents were always extremely supportive and and sweet and uh more or less nothing like <laughs> the parents in the movie uh but we had to have some drama you know you have to have uh, some drama to make make a movie and nobody wants to see a you know hour and a half long movie about you know people that get along really really well with each other <laughs>
1: the drama of uh, Downey and Linwood, California, yeah. pleasant Southern California communities.
0: Yeah. It, actually, Linwood, people, you know, I, when people ask where I was born, I, I always say Downey because I'm, you know, a literalist and the the hospital I was born in was located in Downey. But as soon as I came back from the hospital, I lived in Linwood. And Linwood is nice.
1: Yeah. That's how I would characterize Linwood. It's nice.
0: Yeah. Shig Knight and I went to the same uh, high school, you know. And from the At hood. the same time, did he ever hang out a window? I'm a little older than Shug, I believe. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh did you make music for your parents?
0: Well, you know, I played the accordion around the house and uh my my dad is a World War II veteran. So sometimes we'd get on these jags when mom was away that we would play uh, old like World War II songs. <laughs> and Wait, uh what is the,
1: do you mean like songs from the era of World War II or like over there?
0: Yeah, over like over there. That was a big one. That was a big hit in the house. <laughs>
1: Are they the ones that gave you the accordion to begin with?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, that part of the movie is so... Sort of true, because uh, even though it seems like it's a, a conceit for the movie, there was in fact a door-to-door accordion salesman that came around, and this would have been 1966, when I guess door-to-door accordion salesmen were still a thing uh, to some extent. Um, and uh, he did not get beat up by my dad as he does in the movie, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was uh, my parents' idea that you know when this guy came around and said, "Does your son want to take?" Uh, music lessons. The choices were accordion and guitar. And my parents, being the visionaries uh, that they were, they thought, oh, well, young Alfred would love to be an accordion player because who wouldn't want to be the life of every party? This was like a Harold Hill type figure. He was selling
1: lessons with the instrument. Was he starting a boys band?
0: Yeah, it was, it was like a like a music conservatory, I guess was the, would be the fancy name for it. But uh, yeah, essentially selling lessons. But part of that was the implicit thing that you would you know buy the instrument. So it was. It was. I think his name was Lee Terry. Lee Terry's accordion school in Southgate, and I think Lee is still with us. So he's probably going to watch the movie and go, hey, "That's me." <laughs> uh, I mean, what did you think about being handed an accordion? Nineteen
1: sixty six is the Especially in Southern California and not, you know, Wisconsin or something. That's the waning days of the accordion in American music.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was like the year before the Summer of Love. It was not, the accordion was not like, uh, considered the hippest instrument.
1: Like, I think there was like maybe eight more years where you could sing Roll Out the Barrel at a bar or something, but... I
0: know my grandmother was a big fan of The Lawrence Welk Show, and we all loved Myron Florin. In fact, Myron Florin was the first autograph I ever got when I was a young child. So, you know, I, and again, I I didn't really have a barometer on what was hip when I was six years old quite so much. So I just thought, hey, fine, I'll take accordion lessons.
1: Did you have a barometer on what was hip when you were, you know, 15 years old?
0: I, you know, honestly, I don't know if I've ever really had that barometer. That's That's, <laughs> that's been beyond me. <laughs>
1: You've had to kind of force yourself to have that barometer because you can only parody things that people know about.
0: I suppose so, yeah. But yeah, that that's part of my uh obsessive compulsive thing where I would be like uh studying the Billboard charts and trying to analyze them and figure out you know which are the ones that, you know, are making the biggest impact on pop culture which have the the hookiest hooks. But yeah, I suppose in some uh to to some extent I I that's part of my job description.
1: You started school early, right?
0: Yeah, I started uh, kindergarten a year early, and I skipped second grade. I I was in second grade, and the teacher just thought I was too advanced, so they just moved me across the hall into the third grade class. So as a result, uh, I started high school when I was 12 and, and graduated when I was 16.
1: I mean, I think about that a lot, too. When I was in first grade, the sort of beginning of first grade, they were like, what if we put Jesse in third grade? And my parents said no. After I mean, I think they considered it, but they ultimately said no. And when I look back on it, I think, gosh, I could barely handle being fifteen <laughs> when I was fifteen. What if I had been thirteen when I was fifteen? <laughs> um, but like, very, very sincerely, like it was it it you know being an adolescent in particular is really hard, and you know when everyone else has two years of. Particularly emotional development on you, I imagine it's it's tough. You
0: know, it's tough for anybody. I I don't know how much uh, that was a detriment to me. I mean, seventh grade and eighth grade were probably the two worst years of my life, and I'm not sure how much the age difference had to do with that. I think they're tough for everybody. They're tough for my daughter. I'm sure it's that's a, kind of a universal thing. Um, I know that I didn't get my driver's license until two years after everybody else. But you know, I I can't really blame. My uh, lack of social standing with the age difference so much because I was just a total nerd and a dork. And and I don't know that if I was even the same age as my classmates, if that would have made a huge difference. Uh, there was always that divide because uh, I was who I was.
1: What did being a dork mean when you were in middle school?
0: Um, You just got picked on a lot. Uh, the, the bullies, even scrawny little bullies would, would pick on you. It just kind of made life miserable for me in general. And no real social life, even though at, at that age, I don't know that I was really looking for a social life. Um, but, you know, it was just a lot of getting picked on, which, you know, gets old pretty quickly.
1: What kind of picked on are we talking about?
0: Well, like, you know, they would uh, shove gum, chewing gum into my uh, locker so that I couldn't open it. Uh, they would, like, swat me in PE class. Uh, they would just, you know, poke me. I, I didn't get, like, beat up per se. If anything seemed like it was gonna get violent, I would just run away. I was <laughs> I had no shame in that. Uh but it wasn't like anything like horrific, but it was just like uh, non-ending, you know, uh micro abuses. Did you play music with other people when you were in school? I tried. You know, I was not in the school band, but I remember, like, early on, like, when I was, like, 12 years old, I thought, I want to put a band together. And, and again, this that we allude to this in the movie, uh, but nobody wanted to be in my band. Nobody wanted to play with me. Nobody wanted an accordion player for some odd reason, which is why I finally decided, well, I better do this on my own. And, you know, of course, like, in my early 20s, I finally put together a band, which is the same band that I have to this day.
1: But, Al, you could have thought to yourself... I should take these skills I've learned to play on the accordion and just learn to play the chords on a keyboard that everyone wants in their band. I
0: suppose, but that would be hard. <laughs> you know, the accordion—the accordion is basically half of of a piano, and when I can play the piano, kind of, although my left hand is used to playing buttons, so I, I can I can figure out how to play the piano, but it's not something that's I'm comfortable doing.
1: Were you playing accordion music on your accordion? I mean, were you? Like when you took an accordion lesson, was it roll out the barrel?
0: It it was. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, they certainly didn't teach you stairway to heaven when you take accordion lessons at six years old. Uh, It was mostly like traditional accordion songs like polkas and waltzes and, uh, and a lot of classical music. Uh, public domain stuff, obviously.
1: What kind of classical music were you learning to play on the accordion? Uh,
0: you know, I don't know. William Tell Overture, Hungarian Rhapsody Number 2, just, you know, kind of famous classical pieces like that. Sabre Dance, things like that. Uh, but after I, st- I took lessons for three years, like ages 7 to 10, and uh, then I kind of took a break from it. But I was getting into rock music at that time. So I started, you know, playing along with the songs that I heard on the radio or from my record collection and uh, kind of taught myself rock and roll chord progressions. And uh, it got to the point where I could play along with like a lot of my favorite albums. And, and when my friends heard me doing this, they thought it was hilarious. They thought, oh, you're playing rock and roll on the accordion. And uh, I, I, so I learned pretty early on that you know there was humor to be gleaned from that juxtaposition. A lot of people just thought that was inherently funny to play rock and roll on the accordion. Did you have an idea
1: of wanting to be... An actual entertainer when you were an adolescent
0: I'm sure I had my fantasies, I mean, like every kid like you know sinks into their hairbrush in the bathroom mirror and uh you know and and i I was getting some uh, airplay on the Doctor Demento show when I was you know in my uh, early teens or mid teens, and you know i I enjoyed that small dose of fame, but I never really at that point in my life thought you know this is my life's calling i'm going to be in show business i'm going to be an entertainer because i always I was always pretty um uh, adult minded and grounded in reality. And I realized that, you know, an accordion player generally doesn't like hit the top of the billboard chart. You know, that that's something that, you know, literally has never happened before. <laughs> so I just thought, okay, I'm going to be an architect. And when I was 12 years old, I decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I, you know, went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which has an excellent architecture program. And I went there and I graduated. And by the time I graduated, It was odd because I knew that I really didn't think I was going to be an architect. I didn't really have, you know, any passion for it at that point. But at the same time, I still didn't think I was going to be able to make a living, you know, in in show business because that was always kind of a ridiculous notion to me. So it was was kind of an odd couple of years where I was kind of between having one foot in reality and one foot, you know, in the hope that maybe somebody would sign me. So one
1: of the plot points in Weird, the movie— But many of the plot points are pretty straight parodies of the music biopic. There's also a little bit of, you know, special things to you sprinkled in. One of them is at some point you get advice to just get gigs, just play out, just play in front of people. Was that available to you as a guy who had an accordion and it had his... Home recordings played on on Doctor Demento, not so much.
0: <laughs> that was that was not so much of an option. I, I think, gosh, when I was a teenager, I played in some comedy club which no longer exists, and you know, like at two o'clock in the morning, and got zero reaction. I, I auditioned for the Gong Show when I was in college and did not make the cut. Uh, you know, uh,
1: did Paul, did Paul Rubens ever taunt you? I think Paul Rubens was on the gong show like 42 times.
0: Oh, really? Like <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, not so much. I, I, again, I didn't really have a band, uh, until in 1982 when I, I got my drummer in 1980 and my bass player and guitar player in 1982. So, uh, prior to that, um, you know, there wasn't really you know, aside from, like, playing my my cousin's wedding when I was eight years old, there, there weren't that many, like, serious jobs for a solo accordion player unless I wanted to do, like, you know, weddings or bar mitzvahs or something like that.
1: When did you give yourself permission to think, I can make this my life and not just a thing I do?
0: It was, like, three or four months ago. I finally thought, <laughs> no, um... It, that's hard to say, but i the concrete fact I can give you is that uh, I gave notice at my day job the day that my first song uh, hit the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Because part of my day job uh, job description was that I was supposed to go to the, the, the post office every morning and pick up the mail. Uh, and I worked for a radio syndication company. So it was like, you know, I, I was sort of into business. I was, you know, business adjacent. You worked in the traffic department, though
1: you were you were scheduling advertisements.
0: Yeah, well, I started in the mailroom and then I worked in the traffic department. And then, then I think I went—I think I maybe even went back to the mailroom because I hated having a desk job; it was just soul-sucking. But I, re- yeah, I definitely remember going to the post office, and uh, there was a billboard magazine uh, in that day's mail, and I just opened it up to the Hot 100 chart, and and there I was. It was Ricky, my song, the Tony Basil parody of of Mickey. And uh, I was on the Hot 100 chart, and I thought, maybe I should get serious about this Weird Al thing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I actually have a shot at this. And uh, I gave my notice, and uh, then I guess I was full-time Weird Al.
1: Even more still to come with Weird Al Yankovic. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Lisa Hanawalt. And I'm Emily Heller. Wow, Emily, we've been doing this
0: podcast for 10 years. I know, but hey, don't worry. You can jump in at literally any episode and hear us talk about some of our favorite stuff. Caterpillars becoming butterflies. Martha
1: Stewart flying around in a private jet full of trees. Yes, you heard me right. Trees. Neighbors
0: becoming enemies. Just kidding.
1: (laughs) Whatever messed up stuff we can find on Wikipedia. Our impeccable taste in everything from dogs to TV shows to bodily functions. And horses. Lots and lots of horses. Come for our horned up rants about the world. Stay for the catchy theme songs.
0: You might not learn anything, but we're a good hang. Baby
1: Geniuses. Every other week
0: on MaximumFun.org. Baby Geniuses. Tell us something we don't know.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Weird Al Yankovic, the recording artist behind Eat It and Like a Surgeon and Frank's 2,000-inch TV and many more comedy hits. Al is the writer and the subject of the new movie, Weird, the Al Yankovic Story. It premieres this week on the Roku Channel. Let's get back into our conversation. So you were listening to The Dr. Demento Show, which was and you know he remains kind of the uh the central figure of, of the world of um funny and novelty music. Um and so you must have known how few career artists there were. I mean, Tom Lair had a few successful records, you know, that are that are good straight through, but then he 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 retired like I don't know, I don't know how long he did it, five years or something like that. And besides that, you're like, well, Randy Newman, mm-hmm. but he also does a lot of pretty
0: serious stuff, for sure. And uh, yeah, there, there's there's not many. I mean, you know, the, uh, my Mount Rushmore of parody inspirations would include uh, Alan Sherman, who was extremely popular, but he burned out very quickly from making you know a number of very poor uh, personal and and business decisions, and um, Tom Lehrer, you know, very popular, but he just basically walked away. He said, "Okay, I'm done." I, I think his famous quote was, "He decided that satire was dead when Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize." So <laughs> his, he walked away. His other, his other famous quote was, "What's the use of having laurels
1: if you don't rest on them?"
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, you have to respect that. I, I try to get uh, Tom for my Saturday morning show on CBS in the late '90s, and. Even to do like a, I said, you could be the guy behind the wall. We never see you. We just hear your voice. And he just, he's just completely checked out from, from show business and he just enjoys doing what he does. He was my professor in college. That's right. I, in fact, I, I almost went to UC Santa Cruz just because uh, Tom Lehrer was teaching there at the time, but I thought, you oh, know, I better be more practical about it.
1: He said the only good songwriters after I can't remember. It was like Leopold and Loeb or something. One of the one of the greats of 1950s musical theater. He's like the only good ones are Randy Newman and Stephen Sondheim, and everything else is bad.
0: <laughs> no, I'm trying. To like, I was like, not even
1: Stevie Wonder or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, doesn't everyone like Stevie Wonder?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of the others. So, and and Stan Freeberg, uh also ha- had a long career. Although he kind of segued into advertising, he focused on advertising like like halfway through. So, I think the only person that uh, has had like a decades-long career doing uh, comedy music in, in the last uh, century is probably Spike Jones uh, in the City Slickers, who was popular th- through the 40s and 50s and slightly into the 60s. So if I have any kind of role model, uh, I guess would, at this point it would be him.
1: It's a really tough job to write songs that hold, that are more than just a gag, because a lot of times, you know, it's really hard to write comedy that's so often based on surprise when you've done it once and the surprise isn't there anymore like a song that's still funny the second and third time through is a, is a tough challenge
0: it is it's it's uh it's hard to it, that, that's been a big challenge for me as as my career kept going on and on and on uh is after 14 albums like how do you you know come up with new ways to be funny i mean there there are only so many tropes and so many uh, comedic devices you can employ b- before you start repeating yourself and uh hopefully, I, I didn't do that a whole lot, but I kind of felt like I was getting to the point where you know I don't know how many more angles I can attack something from, so that's you know part of the challenge and maybe part of the reason why i've I've slowed down a little bit in the last several years
1: I think like album three or four or so you had run out of foods to write
0: songs about <laughs> I, I noticed it, it was, you know, pretty early on that I was like, obsessing a lot on, on, on songs about food, particularly when my record label decided to, uh, uh, against my wishes, put out a compilation of all my songs about food. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I thought, eh, maybe I should like back off on the food-related uh, puns for a while.
1: Let's hear a clip from Weird, the Al Yankovic story, uh, which was co-written by my guest, Weird Al. And this is a scene... That features Al as a record executive wearing a truly stunning wig uh, (laughs) alongside Will Forte wearing the same wig. And uh, the character, Al Yankovic, is there after his first song has been played on the radio trying to get a record deal. I've heard enough.
0: And what did you think? Do you know why they call it the music business? Uh, Why? Because it's a business. It's a business. Uh, you sure head, kid? Nobody wants to hear a parody song when they can hear the real thing for the same price. Uh, what's the point? Yeah, it makes no financial sense whatsoever. Uh, my, my, my song was actually a, a big hit on the Captain Buffoon show. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, Captain Buffoon? <laughs> really? Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Captain Buffoon actually played your song on the radio? Yeah. Why don't you tell us this changes everything? Ben, get this young gentleman a record contract. This very instant, we are going to sign him to a 14-album deal. Wait, really? No!
1: <laughs> it's a Chinese restaurant menu. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: that Will Forte, as playing your brother, which I thought was a nice... We're supposed to be the Scotty Brothers, like, which, which is my actual record company, Scotty Brothers, Tony and Ben Scotty.
1: When I saw you in that wig... I thought, well, gosh! At the beginning of your career, your signature curly locks were not always long and free. They have been since, and they—I look, I'm—I'm I'm seeing you on a video conference right now. They look gorgeous. <laughs> they look beautiful as always. Do you ever, like, do you ever cut them off between tours?
0: No, I—I just—I uh, let my hair just grow out on my head. It's right out of my scalp. I, I rarely even cut it. I mean, the last time I even had a haircut was probably not this year. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I just, you know, it's getting a little grayer and thinner all the time, but it's still it's still growing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I am, again, looking at it on the video conference, and you are now 60-ish. And uh, you got a lot of color in that hair and a lot of thickness. God gave you a well, gift. Well, thank you. Thank you. You tour with quite a show. I was asking everybody, what, do you, what should I talk to Weird Al about? One of my producers says, I have some friends who are dancers, and all they, all they can ever talk about is how the best gig and show business is dancing on the Weird Al tour. Because oh, wow. he pays the best, puts people up in the nicest spots, and he's the nicest guy.
0: <laughs> well, fun I have to hear.
1: But like, you put it on a production, you still do, but I imagine that's different when you're... Uh, Sixty than when you are twenty eight. Does it not feel that way?
0: No, I mean um, not yet. I mean, I can still kick over my head. I still am as physical uh, or attempt to be as much as I was, you know, at the beginning of my career. I, I used to do the thing thing, um, uh, unlike a surgeon, where I put my leg behind my head and dance around on one foot. And <laughs> I haven't tried that lately. And no. I don't really have an inclination to do that. That seems like that would be painful at this point in my life. But it's still a very... Now, again, this particular tour we're doing right now is the, uh, the the Vanity Tour. So we're literally sitting on stools and playing. So it's a very non-physical show. But most of my shows, uh, yeah, there's a lot of running around. And it's, it's basically a aerobic exercise for an hour and a half, two hours every night on stage.
1: Do you have to get yourself ready to do that? Like, you've been doing it a long time. Is there something that you do in your in your dressing room or in the green room before you hit the stage
0: just uh you know just stretching and uh just vocal warm-up exercises yeah my my family's very used to <laughs> hearing me to <do> <laughs> that kind of stuff around the house <laughs> mostly that
1: did you have to take singing lessons to learn that stuff
0: I, I took only a couple lessons. I took a lesson lesson or two from Lisa Popiel, who's an old friend of mine who uh, also has appeared on many of my albums, and uh, Eric Vitro, who gave me a, a nice uh, a vocal lesson. And I use uh, the recording of that uh, a lot for, for warm up. So I, I haven't taken, like, a lot of lessons, but enough to know, like... Sort of how to sing, how not to let your voice get tired, because that was always and to this day is is my biggest concern on the road, because if I lose my voice, which I have done on the road, um, there's kind of no getting it back because the only uh, real fix is to just not speak for several days, which if you're doing a show every night, obviously, that's not an option. Has that happened to you? Yeah. I, again, not l- recently, but like in the eighties when I had no idea really how to use my voice. Yeah. I would just sing until I was just croaking. And also, you know, on, sh- on show days, I try not to talk so much, which is why we're doing this particular interview on a, on a day off. But back in the eighties, when I was trying to do as much promotion as possible, cause nobody knew who this weird old guy was. I would do a show at night. I would get up like a crack at dawn and I would do like morning radio shows you know, all all morning long, booger in the bean with Weird Al. You know, it was like, and I'd have to be on and up and loud. And you know, after several weeks of that, I had no voice left. It, and it, you know, and I learned, you know, the hard way, you know, that if if I want to be able to like do long tours, I have to be very very careful with my voice. So you write a lot of
1: songs that are sort of pastiches or genre parodies, you know. Kind of tribute parody songs, um, songs that are not direct parodies of a single track, but more right. like an an artist or a or a genre. Right. That is probably as close as you get to writing your own magnum opi op- opuses. <laughs> Why is that? Why is the closest thing to writing your life is good writing a? Um, you know, what if I wrote a song that was sounded like Sparks?
0: That's just something that I've uh, always enjoyed doing. I mean, I've written a couple songs early on, which I th- would say are not in any identifiable style, uh, like the first couple albums. You know, the, I think the first album is populated with with some original songs that just, you know, sounds like they were written on the accordion, because they were and uh even in the second album songs like midnight star that's not any identifiable style or it's not supposed to sound like anybody really uh but i I started really enjoying writing the pastiches to really like put on another artist's skin as it were and and try to write a song in their style only more more demented uh so i started kind of gravitating more towards those so after after a while pretty much all my original songs were sort of like in the style of another artist and uh uh, that's just something I enjoy doing. It, it, it involves a lot more work than doing a straight parody because there's no, you know, there's no solid template, you know, of like, okay, the song is this long and this many syllables for this line. It's sort of like anything I want to do, but I, I've had to study uh, an artist's entire body of work to try to pick it apart and figure out, you know, what are the little idiosyncrasies that define this artist? And um, it's really a nice little puzzle, you know, because I, I get to really... It's a labor of love, too, because I wouldn't do this with an artist that I didn't, didn't respect. I, I just really have to study their oeuvre and uh, and figure out, like, you know, what, what really makes this artist this artist. Well, let's take,
1: as an example, your tribute to Sparks. Sparks, the kind of hard to categorize, but let's say dance, art, rock band something okay. like that of the <laughs> 19 most popular in the 1970s and 1980s still still making great music um great new music included yes um so sparks is you know one of your more esoteric parody subjects and i bet one that you that you parodied because you really love their records so what was it about their songs that you Picked up on or wrote in Notepad when you were writing your homage.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I love Sparks. I was in the uh, the Edgar Wright documentary about them as a talking head, and uh, yeah, ever since I was like fourteen years old, I just thought this is a really great band. They're also really weird. Uh, you know, uh, Ron Mayo looked extremely nerdy on the album covers, and I can I related to that. And uh, yeah, I just, I just love the band. And, and p- part of the things I would probably write in my notebook while I was listening to their their music was uh, Russell goes into falsetto a lot. Uh, today's Russell's birthday, by the way. I don't know when this is airing, but today, oh. as we're recording, is Russell's birthday. Happy birthday, Russell yeah, from happy Sparks. Birthday, Russell. Hey,
1: Sparks, come on bullseye. <laughs> we want you on the show. Come on. <laughs>
0: So so uh, Russell goes into falsehood a lot. He does a lot of arpeggiated things in the music, uh, so I included that. Uh, they're not afraid to go into entirely different styles. Uh, there's, uh, I f- don't remember offhand, but there's some song on their Indiscreet album where it's like a marching band thing. So I have like a marching band section in the song. And uh, obviously a lot of uh, – it's, it's very synthesizer heavy. Uh, it, it feels like almost like a classical piece. So these are all just like ideas that I have floating around thinking like, okay, now if I were to write a song incorporating all this, what would, what would it sound like?
1: So do you write a melody sitting down at the accordion or do you start with those kind of aesthetic things? Do you start with those textural things?
0: I tend to not write on the accordion quite so much because if I do, it sounds, it sounds like an accordion song. Right. if that makes any sense. Uh, so I try to first envision a melody in my head. Like uh, I'll, I'll just think about a melody and like I'm almost like in a dream state. I, I write a lot of stuff when I'm about to go to sleep or sometimes I'll, I'll keep a, 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 a my laptop by the bed. So in case I wake up and have a great idea, I can just make some notes. But yeah, I, I try to imagine the best version of a melody and hopefully it'll come to me.
1: Well let's hear virus alert which is my guest Weird Al's homage slash parody of uh, the band Sparks. You
0: are warned cuz I got not this morning bad a dangerous insidious computer virus if you should get an email with the subject stinky cheese then i'll not taking the chances under no circumstances should you open
1: You've produced your own records for quite a while. Uh, before that, your records were produced by Rick Derringer, who's like a legendary classic music business studio guy. Rock god, pl- yes, absolutely. Yeah, played guitar on Steely Dan songs and produced the WWF album in the <laughs> in the eighties. Like, just a true classic music industry dude. Yeah. What is the hardest Sound or aesthetic that you've had to find and reproduce for one of your parodies. Like, what is the thing that you had the hardest time recreating?
0: Maybe something in in the uh, later part of uh, of my career, just because samples become so important later on. I mean, it's it's not as hard to you know emulate just a straight ahead rock band, but if if you're like you know, trying to copy something that's based on other samples. It's either a matter of like finding those samples or trying to make that from scratch, which is sometimes kind of difficult. And, and you know, my, my band has been with me since the very beginning and they, they know the drill. So sometimes they will approach the original musicians and the band that we're trying to parody and say, you know, what, what kind of uh, effect we're you using on that guitar or can I, can I borrow the sample that you use for the snare? You know, they'll, they'll do whatever they can to, uh, to, to get it as close to the original as they can.
1: I mean, there are, <laughs> there have probably been times that you have had to recreate in the studio like a a Dr. Dre production where he had a band recreating a sample. <laughs> 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 some of the some of the richer hip hop sample based hip hop producers figured out at some point that uh, they didn't have to give up any of their publishing or as much of their publishing. They didn't right. have to license the recording.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> they had to give up publishing. But they didn't have to license the recording if they had somebody replay something. Yeah. And that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of lines down the, sort of a lot of progressions down the progression of the simulacrum. <laughs> so, like I, Al, I'm a. We talked about this a little a little bit the last time you were on the show. But like I, I'm a big hip hop fan, and there's a lot of hip hop parody out there that I am not that I don't think is that fun or funny, and that it was especially true, you know, 30 years ago. And I think that the same kind of aesthetic craft that goes into sampling and goes into rapping is like the thing, one of the things that you value most in making your music. And that seems like a reason that you're able to produce rap parodies that aren't an embarrassment, (laughs) (laughs) like
0: that care that you take, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I put as much care and effort into every single song. And uh, I I enjoy doing uh, rap music because uh, there's so much for me to play with lyrically. Uh, A lot of pop songs are repetitive or don't have that many lyrics to them. And that's more of a challenge because, you know, okay, you have to tell a joke in six syllables, you know, with and with rap music, by and large, there's, you know— a lot of words. So, for if you're doing comedy, uh, rap is a great genre to to play with. It's
1: also very dense. Often, though, I mean, there's a lot of hit. There's a lot of hip hop and rock songs that are like "My Sharona." You know, yeah, <laughs> "My Sharona" is a great song, no question about it. That song rules, and really. The lyrics are pretty straightforward, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're really, you're really talking about a kind of bop bop it up bop it bop it up situation right. kind right, of thing, right. you know. Right. And you know, if you're going to if you're going to write a rap like Eminem, like the the density and the internal rhyme scheme and stuff is a real challenge. But I wonder if that is also not exciting for the part of your brain that like really wants to
0: make a chart of something and sort it out into, into, into the right order. It is. It's more of a challenge for me because a lot of uh, pop songs is sort of like when I tried it out, it's like, okay, this line rhymes with this line, and that happens like four times. And But with a lot of uh, rap songs, like you mentioned, there's a lot of internal rhyming. So there's like, you know, this line rhymes with this line, but this word kind of rhymes with this word, which rhymes with the word on the next verse, you know. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Uh, so it is a bit of a puzzle, which, uh, which I enjoy.
1: Stick around. More Bullseye Around the Corner from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. Our comedy podcast, Jordan, Jesse, Go! just celebrated its 15th anniversary. It was a couple months ago, but we forgot. Uh, Yeah, completely. Our, Our silly show is 15 years old. That makes it old enough to get its learner's permit. And almost old enough to get the talk. Wow, I hope you got the talk before then. A lot of things have changed in 15 years. Our show's not one of them. We're never changing and you can't make us. Jordan, Jesse, go the same forever at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. My guest is Weird Al Yankovic. He is, of course, well, I mean, the man is Weird Al. He's the most famous parody artist in music history. He's also the writer and the subject of the new film Weird, The Al Yankovic Story. It stars Daniel Radcliffe, Evan Rachel Wood, Rain Wilson, and many others. It premieres on the Roku channel Friday, November 4th. So you made your last album... Eight years ago wish now. Yes. Uh-huh. And your idea at the time was that because of the timeliness of the parodies that you do, that it would liberate you not to make albums anymore. Cause you could make as many you could parody whatever was hot at the moment and not worry about it going cold by the time the album came out. Which I think is a like a really significant concern in your in your music when you're putting out a record every three or four years. Mm-hmm. Now that said, it has now been eight years. <laughs> yes. So, do you think? Do you think that you are enjoying your laurels?
0: <laughs> As <laughs> Tom you would are, say,
1: you've got. Look, you've, you're touring hard. You're working hard. You've made an, a feature film. it's not nothing.
0: Yeah, it's not like I'm retired, uh, but I have not been. As prolific in my recorded output as as I probably implied <laughs> back in two thousand fourteen i 've done a, a small handful of, of new compositions um, but yeah it 's a combination of me uh being lazy. And not being inspired by uh, a lot of contemporary music. And also, I think the biggest thing is I'm just trying to do other things because, you know, I've, I've now shown, you know, what I can do as a recording artist, as Weird Al. And, and, you know, I wanted to do a movie and I I'm I'm trying to do other things. And you uh, know the touring takes up a lot of time as well, and I I love touring. That, that's a, a big part of uh, you know uh, what makes me happy. The act of songwriting is not like a pleasure for me. I, I love uh, having written something. I feel a great sense of accomplishment. But the act of writing is nothing that I wake up and go, oh boy, I get to write a song today. I, I get so focused. My my wife has a thing where she describes me as you know walking through the house with like a thousand-mile stare like a zombie because i'm so in my own head and uh and i kind of need to do that in order to to write but it's not necessarily a really happy or pleasant experience i just it's just something i need to go through in order to get the finished product do you have like a list of
1: other stuff like make a movie
0: <laughs> act on
1: a television show that's two you've done recently
0: yeah yeah I mean, not not a list per se. I mean, uh, just uh, I just want to try other ways to, you know, to be funny or to be creative and are are not necessarily like make a parody of the current most popular song. And I I like to think I'm doing that. I'm, you know, um, I feel like I've I've kept fairly busy since the last album came out. And, and there's probably going to be a soundtrack album for this movie. You know, we're, we're talking about that at some point. So there'll be, uh, you know, some new recorded material out there. But yeah, it's I, I just don't feel compelled to now still be obsessing over the Billboard charts and thinking, what can I do next? I want to just, you know, try new things and see what happens.
1: Al Yankovic, I, I couldn't be happier to have you back on the show. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that when I wrote on twitter like hey what should i ask weird al about when i talk to him today which i do for all our guests i think half of the people who replied to me just said like hey can you tell him thank you
0: oh that's so nice
1: and yeah you've shone so much light into so many people's lives just really oh. meant a lot to a lot of folks so thanks for your these now 40-ish years uh, well, that's so sweet to hear. Thank you. Weird Al Yankovic. His new movie is Weird, The Al Yankovic Story. It is very funny. You can stream it on the Roku channel starting Friday, November 4th. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. At my house, I'm scrambling to save parking spaces out front because it is uh, my son's ninth birthday and there's a video game truck coming. And It turns out it's really long. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at MaxFun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by the Go team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. They have a brand new single out, by the way. Go check it out. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.